This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Welcome to the Shakti Hour, a podcast on Ramdas Be Here Now Network, where I speak with women about their personal experience on the spiritual path. My name is Melanie, and today I'm sharing a conversation with Lama Siltram Alioni. I first came across Lama's teachings several years ago through her book, Feeding Your Demons, and we were able to meet just this last month at the Ramdas Spring Retreat on Maui. Even though a Lama had a terrible cold, she was gracious enough to give me some minutes of her time at the end of the retreat, and we got into some great conversations about her personal story, uh, the Tara Mandala Center in Colorado, Tibetan Buddhism, and reflections on the divine feminine in spirituality. For those of you that were at the retreat, I hope you enjoy hearing more from Lama. And those of you that are new to Lama's teachings, please do go to the Shakti Hour page at BeHereNowNetwork.com where you'll find the Amazon link to purchase her books, Feeding Your Demons, and Women's Wisdom. Please do remember to subscribe to the Shakti Hour on iTunes. And thanks very much for listening. So if you wouldn't mind to just give a little bit briefly about how you actually got into how you even got to India, how you got to Tibet, mm. how you, how did you get there from a young girl to a young woman? Mm -hmm. I went to India first in 1967. I was 19 years old from New Hampshire. I had had some spiritual experiences in my first year of college and also as a teenager. My grandmother uh, was one of the first women to get a PhD from Harvard, and her PhD was in philosophy. And she actually gave me a book on Buddhism called Zen Telegrams when I was 15. And so combination of reading that book and some study that I'd done in high school about language and consciousness. When I was 15, I, I became conscious of being conscious. 
and it happened on a rooftop. Uh, we had a summer house on a lake in New Hampshire, and I had been reading that books and telegrams and went out on the roof and just sat. That time, nobody taught meditation or, you know, there were really no resources, but I just sat there and I heard pine needles falling on the roof. And I thought, wow, I've been living here my whole life every summer and I've never heard pine needles fall because I've been so busy with myself. And so in that moment of hearing the delicate, soft falling of these pine needles on the roof, I had a moment of consciousness of consciousness or awareness of awareness. And then after college, I uh, I, I didn't fin finish college. I dropped out after the first year because what they were teaching wasn't what I wanted to learn and had the opportunity to go to India and eventually Nepal. And that's where I met Tibetans who were coming out of Tibet because of the Chinese invasion of Tibet. It was, it was less than 10 years from when the Chinese entered Lhasa. So it was all very fresh, you know, hundreds of thousands of refugees pouring out. And so when I met the Tibetans, I really felt that I had arrived home and uh, went to Dharamsala and um, from Kathmandu across India, hitchhiked across India with a Japanese traveler. And uh, then had this really sort of immersion with Tibetans in Dharamsala. But I didn't really have teachings at that time. Returned to the West. Uh, and Ramdas was actually in Kathmandu when I was. He wasn't Ramdas yet. He was Richard Alpert. And uh, had driven with David Padua overland. And Because I, I'm thinking there's not that many Westerners. You're not running into that many Westerners no, at that time? No, to the yeah. point where if you saw one, you would talk to them. Uh but Bhagavan Das met Richard um, at a hotel. I think that whole story is in Be Here Now. Uh, so, and then he left on the Be Here Now journey. Bhagavan Das left with Ram Das. I stayed and, uh, and then made this trip overland to Dharamsala, which is on the other side of India in the Himalayas. So... Gradually, I learned more about Buddhism. I returned to the West and and then went to Sami Ling in Scotland, where Trungpa Rinpoche was was still living before he came to the United States. Was that before or after his time at, uh, in Oxford? He had been to Oxford already. He had just been in this famous car accident. Do you know about that? Yeah. He, he came out of the hospital the same day that I arrived at Sami Ling. So, yeah, so at 19, I, I met the Tibetans. I would say that was the seed of my spiritual path. But if you look at it more uh, 
with a wider span, you know, over lifetimes, it was clear that I, my past lives had been in Tibet and I was just picking it up from... You were just on your way home. Yeah. I love the, I love the gentleness of the first awakening, for lack of a better <laughs> term, of the, the pine needles. Yeah. What do you think it was in you beyond this book that your grandmother mm. had given you that was even willing to take that time to sit on the roof mm. to have that moment? I think it was past karma connected to Tibetans and Buddhism at that time. I also found out about Tibet. I just heard the word and I tried to read everything I could, you know, and at that time there really wasn't very much read the Encyclopedia Britannica and so on about Tibet. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, I think we all have karmic seeds in us. We call them in the Tibetan tradition uh, causes. So we have these causes, and then if certain conditions occur, those causes become activated. So I had the causes or these seeds of, of Buddhist, particularly Tibetan Buddhist karma, but growing up in New Hampshire, there were no conditions for that to manifest. And then as soon as I was in those conditions with Tibetans, all those seeds popped open and began to grow. And so that's really been my path all these years since 1967 is uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And it, just to understand the causes as the seeds from a Buddhist perspective, mm -hmm. Would that relate to personality characteristics or individual inclinations? I mm. mean, is it does it translate in a psychological mm -hmm. way, or is it just a? It's some um, some scars. Uh, in Tibetan, the word some scars is bakchak, which means imprints. So, the way I see these uh, causes is quite literally like seeds uh, that are sitting in our mind stream that have been implanted there or imprinted there through various past actions and lifetimes. And so uh, the conditions are kind of like the rain and the sun that fall on those seeds. And so you can have causes connected to anything that just sit there for lifetimes until the conditions occur in which those will sprout open and make themselves obvious. Would that be then like considered like basically finding your dharma? Like that the that you get the right fertilizer and the right sun so this can grow and you can follow that path? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The the condition to have to be there. And we, we have lots of different conditions. This isn't only true of spiritual things. We can have negative conditions, too, of uh, things that we've done that have created karmic imprinting that isn't positive. And then if we get into certain circumstances, those conditions can cause those particular seeds to manifest. So we have millions of these karmic seeds sitting there and that's why we put ourselves in certain environments so that the positive causes are, uh, are, are activated. So if we're together now at this Maori retreat, 
for many people who came here, there might have been new people who who just were are exposed to spirituality for the first time. So by putting themselves in the conditions of this retreat, their causes will get activated and their path will begin. And how con- conscious were you of that when you left college and embarked on this journey? I had no idea. It was all very intuitive and like feeling my way in the dark. Yeah, and also quite courageous, I would say, for a young woman to, to, to do that traveling at that time. Courageous or crazy? Courageous or crazy. <laughs> Often I think those things are very, very related. Yeah, I mean, what I did, you know, hitchhiking across northern India, <laughs> the top of trucks and third-class trains with no ticket and mm-hmm. all kinds of things that now I think, what was I thinking? Yeah. But I love this idea of the seeds, and and also all these seeds were sprouting. Yeah. uh, Right around the time that you were there as well. That's true. Ram Das was, and Chogyam was coming out of the hospital, and Mm -hmm. Bhagavan Das, and... Yeah, it was an extraordinary time. Uh, when When I met Ram Das again, was in Bodh Gaya in 1971. Krishnadas was there. Uh, Raghu was there. Danny Goleman, Anasuya, Mirabai, John Bush. Um, and I think we knew it. We knew that we were living an extraordinary moment, although we had nothing to compare it with. We were all really amazed that we were there. And for me, I, I was always a little different. I, I was just I had this slightly different karma. I wasn't doing those vipassana courses, but I was there with them, you know. And I was always in this Tibetan stream. But but somehow we were all linked, and we've stayed linked all these years. Is there a reflection on that now, as as you have all? Um followed your own paths, had your own teachings. Is there a reflection on that moment now and coming back together or coming to be here? Does that seem like the same thing? I think there's definitely a feeling of long-term connection and continuity that will go on in the next life as well that we all have. Uh, Christian Das and I are very c- close. Um, and Raghu and and um, Ram Das, Bhagavan Das, all of them. Who knows? You know where we knew each other before, where we'll meet again. But there's such a feeling of familiarity that I'm sure we will. You were not in the psychedelic flow with them. Or, I was. Or? I had met psychedelics in college, that first year of college. But I was already, like the person that introduced me to psychedelics couldn't believe I'd never had them (laughs) because of how I was. And uh, my interest in meditation, and I'd had a lot of experiences already. So I my interest 
in drugs was always mind expansion. And I was, I, I did take a, quite a bit of acid. I lived in Haight-Ashbury in the fall of 66, uh, on the corner of Haight-Ashbury, actually. <laughs> but it was pretty, I pretty quickly got the idea that this was a good introduction, but it wasn't a path. And so I knew I needed a path. And I what would you, true. just a total aside of my own curiosity, what would you say the percentage or the number of people that had that point of view, consciousness exploration versus getting high? Just, tri- yeah, just tripping yeah. out. Pretty much everyone that I knew. Uh, who was, I mean, I think it, to a degree, you know, different people to greater or lesser degrees were using it as a potential spiritual awakening. It was such a time of general awakening on lots of levels that um, we were all in that process. And then you know, once it really got out into the streets and wasn't being taken with honoring the substance as a sacred substance and so on, it really changed. So it's hard to generalize, but I think in the beginning, in the, you know, I, I was first introduced to it uh, in 1965 uh, to LSD and... And then by, by sort of mid-67, that was the summer of love, and it really exploded and was in the media and much more. And so it um, went to all kinds of different people. Right. It's, it's, uh, it sounds like the yoga explosion in, in America right now, too, yeah. in this way. And, um, you know, people are, looking for something Mm -hmm. and we've got countless teachers. I know it's really kind of amazing and countless teacher trainings that are occurring all the time. Uh, yoga was also just beginning at that time. I knew some of the very first American yoga teachers. And uh, and it was very spiritual, the approach and vegetarianism. And it was all about awareness. And then, you know, yoga became almost like another kind of workout way to work out and I know there are yoga teachers now that are trying to get back the spiritual roots of yoga and emphasize that Uh, and you know I think with all these things like you know mindfulness some people say oh you know now they're teaching mindfulness at Google and what happened to Buddhism and but I think when there's a span like that of everything from uh, meditate so you'll be better at business to meditate so you'll be enlightened. 
that the span of that uh, motivation is fine. Some people will do it for one reason or another, but uh, it would then then there will be a, a door, a dharma door for many people. And the way that it's being introduced, like my daughter is an executive, and and uh, she's teaching mindfulness, Sony Films, you know, it is part of her trainings in organization development. So I'm not somebody who thinks, oh, it should just be this pure spiritual yoga, and this is wrong to have yoga as an exercise program. I don't think so. I think it's okay as long as the whole span is is there and available. I mean, sitting in this seat, you know, hearing your story and you had one book and a roof and a pine needle and then a journey <laughs> across, the, you know, the entire other continent to this place and that place and, you know, to then hold the, hold the seat of teacher. Mm. That um, it's it feels generous from your point of view to offer that, <laughs> to offer, you know, a 200 hour yoga teacher training versus how many hours did you spend, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, 45 in, years <laughs> in this journey. Yeah. But I like that, you're, you know, the idea of a Dharma door, that there's mm-hmm. a different entrance for yeah. everyone. Yeah. 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 And now there's yoga classes in all the little towns in America. Yeah. And that's going to be a Dharma door for many people. So I spoke with um, another woman briefly about um, Buddhism and women in Buddhism. I don't have much knowledge around that, but just what I gleaned from her is that that was women in Buddhism was not uh, a normal thing. Not normal, but not... Women Buddhist teachers, you mean? Correct. Certainly women of Buddhism in Buddhism have been there from the beginning. Uh Buddhist teachers of Buddhism have been rare and far between. Again, that's changing at this point. When I wrote my book, Women of Wisdom, it came out in 1984. It was the first book about the question of where are the women in in, uh, Buddhism and at, by then, in 84, Buddhism was establishing itself in the West through Vipassana and Zen, Tibetan tradition, and so on. But nobody had really asked the question, well, where are the women? Where are the women teachers, particularly? Nor had I. And then with the death of my daughter, Kiara, of sudden infant death, and the need for the stories of women just to get through that experience, I began to try to find the women and so I think it's a question that most women end up asking if they get involved with either Hinduism or Buddhism. You know, where where are the women in 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 in, in seats of power and and transmission? There's always women in the audience. You know, with the male gurus, you know, you look out. How many? What's the percentage? of men and women, it's always more women. Uh, And what I think isn't good is that it's usually men telling the women what their experience should be or could be or whatever, defining their spiritual experience. And then the women going and talking amongst themselves about what that actually means. 
yeah. having their own uh, satsang. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, women of wisdom asked some questions like, if there was a path by women for women, what would that be like? Instead of created by men for men that women get to participate in if they're lucky and well-behaved. So... Uh, and of taking care of the house and the right and doing everything else and then if they can fit it in okay from that aside back into the women of wisdom Mm. and what the path would look like by women for women right can you speak a little bit about that well it's a question i think it's still a question for me what would the spiritual path be if it were created by women for women instead of by men for men and women participating in that by permission and sometimes you know not allowed to fully participate because they're women one of the things that i suggest in women of wisdom is that the emphasis in uh currently we have the masculine associated with skillful means and the feminine associated with with wisdom in the Tibetan tradition, skillful means of wisdom, masculine and feminine. And um, one of the things that I propose is right now uh, there's so much emphasis on wisdom in the Buddhist tradition because the, the males lack it. They lack this innate wisdom, which is feminine, and so they're developing it. And that perhaps women lack the skillful means uh how you know how do we function skillfully in the world uh and that perhaps a path developed by women for women would have that in it skillful means might be something that women need to develop in the sense of how do we function well in our world and not just be kind of spaced out and wise, and but not really functioning with clarity. And I saw this in myself. I taught for many years a women's wisdom, but I never formed any organizations. I never, I'd go somewhere. I never thought to form a group or, you know, create any kind of structures. And then I watched the llamas come in and, you know, they'd be somewhere for like two days and they'd form a group and they'd have a structure and that would keep their group going and, you know, put someone in charge. And and uh, after, I mean, literally 20 years, I thought, I need to do that because I noticed I'd go and teach and then everyone would be really inspired and then I'd come back after a year and they would have stopped doing it and then I'd have to go, you know get it all going again and so that's a that's an example of what would be a skillful means so I began to create structures and groups and uh, created Tara Mandala and so on so that's an idea of something that might be developed uh, by women for women of course we also need to develop our wisdom it's not like we just automatically have it as women, is something that needs to be cult- cultivated and trained. And again, it also needs structure. And I think that that idea of skillful means uh, 
ability to move in the world uh, as women without giving up uh, w the qualities of the feminine is something that's a really interesting question. Yeah, because just as you were saying that, I, I was thinking that that... Um That you know, even like this podcast is within the structure of a network that's something else, mm -hmm. and for me that that's perfect. Mm -hmm. But um, if I were to want to go and create my own network, that makes me want to crawl in a cave mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. to have that s that structure and and management and the that aspect of it. But I love I love. Um, the intertwining of that masculine and feminine that way perceived as a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. So not, I'm going to go out there and compete in a man's world or mm -hmm. something like that, but par as part of my spiritual practice, as part of developing my wisdom is also developing the skillful means. Mm -hmm. But what can, can you say more about what it means to develop the wisdom mm. part of that? Well, uh, developing uh, our wisdom has to do with practices and discipline. So one way that I teach is the mandala principle. The mandala is the center with four directions. It's a template of enlightenment. And so I teach the mandala of the five dakinis, Dakinis are the embodiments of, of feminine wisdom. But they are interesting because they're not the, uh, I guess you could say, the patriarchally defined acceptable feminine wisdom. They're sexual and wild and they can be wrathful, they can be peaceful, they can be magnetizing. When I've discovered the Dakinis, I've felt, okay, I can do this. I can do this. Uh, I can do Buddhism. Because if it was just the Buddha, uh, as a woman, here's, here's an amazing man, obviously, the Buddha. But it's a man who's left his children and his wife, his child and his wife, gone out the window in the middle of the night, left her to figure it out herself, and gone off on his own search with men. You know, all his teachers were men, and, and he practiced austerities with men. And then it was actually when he accepted the feminine back into his life that he got enlightened. I don't know if you know this story about Sujata, but it was that he had been practicing austerities for for several years and was at the point of almost dying from fasting, practicing asceticism. And he couldn't actually sit up to meditate. And Sujata, who was this young woman in the village near Bodh Gaya, offered him milk rice. And to me, that milk rice is really like mother's milk. Like, what food do we have that's more like mother's milk than that? So he takes this from the feminine, and then he gains the strength 
to go to sit under the Bodhi tree. And then there's another really interesting connection with the feminine that happens where as he, he sits down to take his seat, Mara appears and says, this is my seat under the Bodhi tree. And the Buddha said, no, this is my seat. And I'm taking the seat and I'm going to sit here until I gain unsurpassable enlightenment. And Mara says, no, it's, it's my seat. And if you say it's yours, by what right do you claim it? And the Buddha said, the right of all my past lives as a bodhisattva that have led me to this moment. And so Mara says, well, prove it. Like, who, who's your witness for all these lives you say you've had that have led you to claim this seat? And the Buddha sits for a moment and then he leans down and touches the earth. And he places his hand in what's called the earth with the earth witnessing posture. And he said, the earth is my witness. And at that moment, the goddess of the earth reaches up and touches his fingers as he's touching down and, and causes the earth to tremble. So at that moment, then Mara slinks off into the darkness because the earth has spoken. So in the, in the story of the Buddha's life, it wasn't until he had those two experiences of first accepting the nourishment from the feminine and then being supported literally by the goddess of the earth in his quest for enlightenment, mm. that he reaches enlightenment. Right. But anyway, so that's the Buddha and the feminine. Uh, but for me, meeting the Dakinis in the, in the tantric tradition made it, for me, seem possible to practice Buddhism because they were the kind of feminine that I could identify with. I couldn't identify with a sexless feminine. I couldn't identify with a feminine that was only ever you know gentle and sweet and quiet and well behaved. I needed these the wildness, the freedom, the uh, the independence of the Dakinis. And so you were saying what practices might might we do? The the mandala of the five wisdom Dakinis is something that I teach not only to women and it, it's very helpful for women. It's five aspects of the feminine connected to the four directions in the center. It's one of those systems where it's there's an element, there's a color, there's an obscured pattern or uh, encumbered emotion, I call it, and a wisdom for each direction. And they're all dakinis. So they're all dancing, they're naked, they're wearing bone ornaments, and they're embodying wisdom. And so I think that women need that. They need images of the divine which don't limit them to say, okay, to be spiritual and to be feminine, you have to be like this. You have to behave like this. 
Um, I don't think so. I think that we and need to have that complexity of character. Yes. Yes. To be able to have, sure, you can be. Yeah. You can be sweet. This can be part of your character. Yeah. And this other part of your character can also present itself. And then there's the 21 Taras who are similar, uh, similarly diverse. There's wrathful ones, there's peaceful ones, there's magnetizing ones. And all each of the 21 Taras has a different capacity that she embodies. So the... The Vajrayana tradition, I, I hesitate to use the word Tantra because Tantra, the word has been kind of co-opted by Neo-Tantra, which is not what I mean by Tantra. And so uh, the word is Tantra, the Tantrayana, but I tend to use Vajrayana because uh, if you say Tantra, everybody thinks, oh, sex. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Which is not. I, I'm not so what saying. What would you say that? To, what if you were to say what is ta- the tantra? That what you're is tantra? Saying, yeah. yeah. What would you? Call well, it? tantra. The word tantra actually means continuity, and so it's a continuity of awareness in all in all aspects of life, and it's also continuity of luminosity. So it's it's the luminous thread that connects everything. And so a, a tantric tradition in, in, in the Buddhist tantric tradition came into Buddhism about 700. And it, it was, its roots were in the Shakta tradition, which is worships the feminine. The roots of that, we don't know exactly where that came out of, but very early Indus Valley civilization, same place that yoga came from, so uh, when Buddhism was joined by Tantra in the 7th century, there was a huge change that took place. And Buddhist Tantra became the predominant form of Buddhism that was being practiced in India. And it was practiced by the Pala kings and supported by them. And so that's why when Buddhism went to Tibet... It, be, it was tantric Buddhism that went to Tibet because it didn't go to Tibet until the 8th century. And that was what, Buddhist Tantra was what was happening in um, India at that time. So that's why that's what went to Tibet. But so, so the interesting thing, and this was also interesting to me, as I was saying before, I don't know if I could have practiced Buddhism without the Vajrayana aspect, because it was the first time that we had female Buddhas. Before that, the stories were all about, uh, well, you can be a woman and you can practice Buddhism, but of course, if you're going to get enlightened, you have to take a male body. But with with the advent of Vajrayana, we have women gurus. We have female Buddhas, like Tara. We have the Dakinis. We have sacred sexuality. We have dance as part of practice. We have feasting also. Uh, the embracing of the poisons as path. So all kinds of things that weren't there before yeah. came in uh, to Buddhism. Yeah, much a much more welcoming possibility. More inclusive. More inclusive, yeah. yeah. Well literally 
inclusive of all yeah. things. Yeah. yeah. The freedom of your experience, the freedom of your mind at this time when all these other seeds were blossoming with all these people and then coming back here and the Naropa scenario and everyone kind of going out in in um, having their minds open. Do you feel that, the, do you see that same openness in this present moment? Is it even relevant to reflect on on the, how it was then <laughs> versus how it is now mm. in terms of how, how people's minds are uh, open to these possibilities and well, there's a lot more resources now. As I was saying before, there's a yoga studio in every little town in America now. In terms of the openness, I don't think we have that level. It was such, it was really like an explosion at that time. Lots of experimentation, lots of creativity and so on. I think it's still g happening. I mean, here you are doing what you're doing. Um, I'm doing what I'm doing. It's, it, I don't know where that phenomena of the 60s came from or the age of Aquarius or who knows what were the factors that triggered that, but I think it was in significant impact on the earth. And we're seeing sort of the reverberations of that as Buddhism goes into Google. I was at Google last year, and um, they're very interested in these things. And so now we're seeing it enter the mainstream. It, and then it was a small pockets of really, uh, I mean, Naropa was a fairly big situation, but relative to the rest of America, it wasn't. And now those people like myself, yourself, all the various people who are teaching mindfulness and so on, we found ways to infiltrate into the bastion of, of patriarchal structures um, and um, materialistic structures, I, I, I hope. I aspire that that's true. Yeah, that's a very nice, the feeling I'm getting from what you're saying is um, not necessarily, it, it's a, it takes the urgency out of the matter and, and trust that the, there was this giant tidal wave and that the coming, the coming back, <laughs> everything that's coming out of that is still is seeding it is yeah. is seeding the land has been seeding the land and that the 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 new growth is ha is happening yeah yeah it's almost like you know when there's a big flood that that all those flood waters spread seeds and as the flood recedes all those seeds pop up and begin to flower yeah So when in your path did you decide that you were going to be teaching? I didn't decide. My teachers asked me to teach. Mm. And it happened pretty early when I, that I began. So 
when I came back in 19, end of 1972, uh, and yeah, was it, yeah, 72, then I went back to India again, and then I returned in 73. So by 74, I was already beginning to teach. Uh, meditation. My, um, I was teaching under Trungpa Rinpoche, and he was sending me around to, to teach in what they called the Dharma Datus and Dharma study groups. Uh, I think it was in many ways premature for me to be teaching, but he needed people. He couldn't do it all himself, and so he needed people, and I was one of the more experienced people even though I wasn't terribly experienced so it was very interesting to teach because I realized I needed to articulate my own experience and also to act as a bridge so I was I had I had lived very traditionally and been trained very traditionally much more traditionally than Trumper Rinpoche students in the west have been taught I didn't have that advantage I'd learned in Tibetan and just exactly like Tibetans learn and practice. So so as I came back and began to teach under him, I had to uh, digest what I had learned and then find ways to make it accessible and useful to people in the West. And Feeding Your Demons was part, it's an example of of that process of of me as a Westerner learning the tradition and then digesting it, and then looking at all the methods that were available in the West and trying to figure out how can I communicate the essence of this teaching in a way that will then be helpful and accessible to Westerners. So much compassion in that, <laughs> that, that thought, you know? And, and the, the love of the practice, the love of the teaching to want to share it with people who wanted to hear it and find a way for them to understand it. Um, I, I'm really struck by that. And again, it feels tied to that moment in a way. Obviously, you can do that. We're doing that here. Mm -hmm. You know, Obviously, there's pockets of doing that. But as the market has marketplace has entered so strongly into spirituality, um, sometimes... I find it difficult to find that compassionate desire to mm. share <laughs> wisdom mm. behind the the teaching. Mm. Yeah, I I I really uh, like teaching. I like it because it requires me to keep learning. I like it because it's the teachings have helped me so much. I want to share them, and. It's my job. I, I really feel this is my assignment in this life to, to do this. And I was given the amazing opportunity to be in India with Dingo Kensi Rinpoche and Dujan Rinpoche, Kala Rinpoche, Abu Rinpoche, all these lamas who passed away now quite a while ago. I had the fortune and honor to sit with those people. And so I feel a certain responsibility to share 
as well as I can uh, the essence of the teachings mm. as a, as a because I had the privilege of being there with those people mm. and and it's not like once upon a time I mean there's really great llamas now it's not like you know if you weren't there then you missed the boat and you'll have to get it from me <laughs> 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 um, but uh, it certainly we know we were talking in the beginning about that moment of uh, that Ramdas met his teacher and I was meeting my teachers and just that sort of upsurge of of uh, genuine Westerners connecting in the East with genuine authentic teachers and then uh, having their own experience and then ultimately bringing it back here. Yeah, a very a very powerful moment. So then you went. So you were doing a bit at Naropa. Then you went on and you started your fa- your family. Yeah. Yeah. So I had my first child in 1974. Sherab, my oldest, and I had in, I had Aloka in 1975. Uh, and then I had my twins in 1980. And as as you know, I lost one and uh, one of the twins, and that was the catalyst for my book women of wisdom uh so yeah so i went from being a nun to being a mother do you have children yeah uh it's a it's a shock i'm sure you have heard that from women uh i had no time to myself from having all the time in the world to myself as a nun so it was an incredible teacher like it was like a uh, cauldron that I cooked in, cooking in the cauldron of motherhood, and having two children very close together, and then the twins and losing one. I had so many of the difficult experiences of being a mother, but it took all that I had lear- learned in the cave, you could say, and let's see how we do with the kitchen sink and being woken up many, many times during the night, and how, how's your patience now, you know? <laughs> I thought I had overcome so many things that I hadn't actually overcome when I was a nun. I just wasn't being presented with them because I was being protected. So that was a really another kind of way of digesting the teachings, and in retrospect, it seems, oh, yeah, of course, that was easy. You just kind of figured it out. But at the time, I thought I was losing my path. I thought, it's over now. You know, I'm a mother. I can't serve the lamas anymore. I can't meditate. I don't have any time. And uh, it was very difficult. It was very challenging. And I would say I had postpartum depression with my first child of, that wasn't named at that time, but just feeling a lot of blues of what I had lost and how do I deal with this situation? But ultimately, I was able to integrate it and and I think it enriched me as a teacher so much to go through that. It's, those a, difficulties. it's a instant selfless service. Yeah, 
24-7. Yeah, like it or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It, yeah. It is, and, and it's not... Um, there's nobody cheering you on, you know. There's no applause from anyone. Right. Right. Then, so, do you feel like that, is it, when you say you, you integrated it, do you feel like that was part of that integration of there's no external applause or th- that that has to start to come from within the the drive for the satisfaction comes from within Not I think I think you know when I say I integrated I think it was more um how to how do you actually work with emotions how do you actually work with impatience or fatigue um and how do you, you know, we, we talk about bring the Dharma into your daily life. Well, how do you actually do that when you don't have time to meditate? It's not conceptual when right. someone yeah. is throwing a tantrum on the floor. Yeah. There's no concept. Yeah. Yeah, you're in real time. Yeah. How do you apply what you've learned in those situations? And because they are so real and so on the ground, it's a good test, and you can see where you are or where you're not from that. Yeah. And relationship, too. You know, relationship is a whole other thing that, you know, is present for me coming out of being a nun. And um, So how long were you actually a nun? Oh. Four years. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, and then I got pregnant sort of five minutes after I gave back my vows, it seemed like... <laughs> <laughs> Pretty quickly, uh, within a year, I had a child. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess that was part of your path. Um, mm. So, tell me a little bit about the the groups that you mentioned at the beginning before we started. Yeah, the, there's the two spirit. things. Yeah. Uh, one is this, uh, movement that's beginning called Wisdom Rising, reawaken the sacred feminine which I think you're involved with, you know, without maybe even knowing that that exists. Uh, it's, it came out of uh, my experience of the political situation and actually uh, in 2001 uh, with the attacks on the Trade Center. I was in a solitary retreat at that time. And... Um, so what preceded that, I did a year in solitude uh, in a cabin in, at Taramandala and a real retreat, you know, 12 hours a day of practice. And it, one of the stimuluses for this retreat was that my teacher, uh, Namke Norba Rinpoche, very wise and amazing lama, had told me that I was too feminist and too psychological, and that that was dualistic, you know, to be too feminist, dualistic, and that his tradition was non-dual, and so I needed to stop talking about the feminine. And so uh, I went into retreat to think about Can that. Can I ask it just a little bit, when did, when did that occur? When was that? 1998. And what was the context of it? context yeah like how did that 
how did that? He came in a letter. He wrote me a letter. Um, I had been teaching under him. I think I was the only person authorized to teach under him at that time. And and then he started a teacher training program, which I was participating in. And uh, he sent me this long letter about those two things, about psych- two psychological and two feminist. And what had you? What was your response in that moment? Do you remember? I went into shock. Yeah. I went into actual physical shock. I found out later I'd never been in shock before, but literally uh, I started shaking, couldn't breathe, and uh, it, w- it was very difficult, very difficult, because this is a very uh, great lama for whom I had great respect. And so... And I knew that this other thing was important. And I knew the effect it had had on women to do like the Dakini retreats with the mandala and to embody the transformation into the sacred feminine. But I didn't know what to do. So I went into retreat. I wanted to get away from all influences and make my own decision. And so 2011 happened in that retreat while I was in retreat. And my reaction was, where's the feminine? In the lives of the men that did this, and in the United States, uh, reaction. Where's the feminine? And so the upshot was my recommitment to the sacred feminine, to the reemergence of the sacred feminine, and uh, come hell or high water, and come get get it, get it, excommunicated or you know un- be unacceptable or whatever I uh, made it was a long arduous decision and it took a year to make it but I decided during that year by myself on the mountain that I had to commit to the, f- the feminine the reemergence of the sacred feminine for the survival of the planet and it did mean at the time that I lost my community. Uh, I lost my teacher. Um, I, uh, I jumped off the cliff. And what happened was very interesting when I made that decision. It was like the earth rose up to meet me. And um, most of my students stayed with me. They said, we're, if you're going, we're going to. You know, and I'd really been encouraging them all to study with my male teachers. And they were like, nope, we're going with you. And then Tara Mandala, which is my center in Colorado, um, I thought it would just fail. And, you know, at that point, we had no buildings. Uh, we had land, but it was so difficult. We didn't even have running water. We had no electricity or anything. I thought, okay, well, I guess this just failed. Um, but what happened was all this money came to me from my students, and and they built Tara Mandala. You know, we, we paid off 700 acres of land and built a three-story incredible temple dedicated to the sacred feminine, a mandala temple which I hope you can come and see. I can't wait, yeah. Be part of it. Um, 
so and then the beautiful thing is that eventually after 14 years my teacher came to see it and I was so nervous I was you know I remember saying to people he's going to criticize me he's going to say something publicly about me being too feminist and they said I don't think he's going to come here and do that and in fact he he uh was super supportive and he turned to me as I was showing him around the temple and we sat down for a minute and he just turned to me and he said you've done a really good job oh wow yeah so he's been uh, twice now to see it and we'll probably come again um, did you have any dialogue with him about your decision no you just went you you took his feedback went into shock took care of yourself went into retreat got clear Mm -hmm. and then went forward and that was it yeah I didn't want to answer I just I didn't want to burn any bridges you know and I I didn't want to argue I just I needed to know what my decision was going to be I I totally honored him the whole time I didn't ever spoke against him um I saw us having two different views, uh, according you know, according to our own experience, and so I just made my choice. And my husband at the time, David, who died in 2010, and my son also was very involved with the, my practice and teaching. Is a scholar now himself. Um, they were both completely behind me. And uh, so I had that masculine support, even in that that difficult time. So anyway, that was my, that that was this recommitment to the importance of the sacred feminine. Can I ask you what you thought? You said you asked the question, "Where is the feminine?" Yeah. In the in the lives of these men, the terrorists, where is the feminine in the in, in the our response? response? Did you have an answer to that, or was that just missing, the missing, just missing in action, <laughs> missing, missing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the lives of those men. And how could you imagine it would be? Well, what if those men had had strong mothers who were empowered and who had taught them about the feminine, who had taught to talk to them about the sacredness of life, and the earth, and nonviolence, and the things that tantra. The, the, yeah, Tantra. Um, you know, the only person that voted against the Iraq invasion was a was a black woman congresswoman, a woman, one. Which I thought was really interesting. It was the feminine. I had that in that moment. I I was in New York for that, and I had that thought the next day. What if we didn't retaliate? Mm-hmm. And I saw mm-hmm. this whole other. Yeah. World of possibilities yeah. open from that. Yeah, thought. what if we went into dialogue? Um and that's why when when Obama ran and said he wanted to dialogue with the enemy, and I don't know if you remember, but Hillary Clinton said that's so naive to think you can dialogue with the enemy. Yeah. And but I was like, I'm definitely voting for him. <laughs> Because it's like feeding the demons, you know. Listen, listen to what the needs are, what's being expressed here. 
But anyway, so getting back to the reemergence of the feminine, which I know you're very committed to also. So that was when I really recommitted. And since then, that's been, I haven't wavered from that. And, um, and then a couple of years ago, in, in discussion with Eve Ensler, you know, the va- vagina monologue, and so on, I felt we need to, some kind of a movement that names this as important because different people are talking about it. Let's start a movement. And so I started this movement called Wisdom Rising, Reawaken the Sacred Feminine. And so I've done events myself and other people have done events around the country and in Europe. And now we have formed a Facebook page and uh, this will put this interview and would love to link with your with your events on with Wisdom Rising. Um, it's not something I feel like I own. You can have a Wisdom Rising event, you know, anybody can. Um, it's it's a way of articulating this as a as a wave that is important, really important. I said to Eve, uh, you know, we need to be at the table where the important decisions are being made that are affecting us all. The wise feminine needs to be at that table. And she said, I don't know if I want to be at that table. (laughs) I think I want my own table. And I love that, too, you know. Yeah, maybe we don't need to be at that table. We can have our own table and uh, create an alternative table. But in any well, case, in, in, I mean, in in your example, that's what occurred. Yeah, you with Taramandala, you mean? Yeah. Yes, yes, and now Taramandala is this amazing resource. It's an amazing resource for for the for for people who are want to go and be bathed in the sacred feminine and that energy within the Buddhist tradition, but also yoga teachers come and teach in this temple with life-size statues of Tara, the Tara surrounding them. I love that this, your story went in so, it went for quite some time Yeah. before you were met with a hand that said, okay, enough, mm-hmm. enough of being, I mean, this isn't what he said, but, but enough of uh, this feminine perspective. Let's stick to the teachings as they are. Yeah. That seems... That's actually quite fortuitous, you know. And that I got, that I had quite a bit of time before that happened. Yeah, well, that you, uh, yeah, you made it to that moment of. Yeah, well, and also, do you know the story of Tara? Only as you told it uh, briefly the other day mm. here. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So I, I told that story, and and um. You know, we are beyond gender. The nature of mind is beyond gender. The nature of reality, gender is a very limited notion. And at the same time, we live in a gendered society. And that's what she said. So since we are in this relative world, gender, we need to support and find balance through through the feminine and not have half the picture missing. And because it's been lost for so long, we have to figure out what the feminine is and not have it be defined uh, by patriarchy. 
it's 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 an experiment it's an experience it's very exciting to like well what is it you know what is it for me and what is it for you and that's it um i spoke with uh, someone else yesterday and it really is just starting to hit me that we don't have a definition no for what this is no it's quite vast Maybe not even uh, and mysterious. L- mysterious. Maybe not even li- literal. Mm-hmm. Language around it is um, yeah is not uh, found yet. Yeah. yeah, and maybe it's beyond language. Maybe it's um, not verbal. You know, we say in Prajnaparamita, who is the great mother, the, the embodiment of the of wisdom. So we say Prajnaparamita is the mother of all the Buddhas. Inconceivable, ineffable, and inexpressible. And so I think there's something, when we try to speak about the sacred feminine, it's kind of like a blank. You draw a blank because it's beyond words. She's beyond words, which is a beautiful thing. Right, and so the iconography that spoke to you initially was so valuable. So these mm-hmm. embodiment practices that you teach, mm-hmm. even even as um, just reflections of characteristics, is mm-hmm. is actually so divine. valuable of divine. So that there is something tangible mm-hmm. to interact with. Yeah, and that's another thing that I wanted to mention is that I've done is to form the mother lineage. It's called Magyu, which means mother lineage in Tibetan. And so it's a lineage. It's a long-term study and practice program that is based in practices like feeding your demons, the mandala, the mandala practices, and other nature of mind practices that are practices that have both come from Machiklaptran in from the 11th century, but also come to me in this life. And so instead of just going and teaching here and there and, you know, like I just did here, there's a, uh, a path and there's practices that you do. You have a Kalyanamitra who's a spiritual mentor who you meet with every month. And so there's a sense of, develop, of spiritual development in relationship to the sacred feminine. The way that we've structured it is you can go through it at your own pace, like it's not a cohort. You have to do this every year. We have another 10-year program that's like that, but this one is made, it's flexibility. So you can go through the, the sequence of practices at your own pace. Right, and you could have a, a child. Yes, or you have an illness or some, you know, something intervenes and you don't lose it. I've had mothers write me and say, well, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can practice an hour a day. And, and I said, well, this is called the mother lineage because it has flexibility in it. So I will just ask the question that I have asked everyone to give a brief piece of advice directly to women and girls on the spiritual path, either from what you see with people coming to you or just a, something a piece to take with them? I think a a simple uh, practice that I could suggest that would 
uh, could be uh, begun as as girls go into puberty or even before and carried out until we are old and die is uh, appreciation of the body of the female body and so and acceptance female body and so we would um, begin but with your feet and just touch your feet and recognize this, these are female feet and then love and accept them just the way they are and then you move up to your calf your thighs which you can always go back to hating later but you, for the moment you love them and accept them Think about what they do for you, and then you go into the core of your body, your breasts, arms, face, and everything. And as you touch, you breathe in. And then as you breathe out, you offer love and acceptance to your body. That's the practice I would suggest because women have such a hard time accepting their bodies. And the patriarchal definition of how our bodies are supposed to be is so limited that we have to be basically anorexic to be acceptable uh, and at uh, those standards. And so I think for young girls, that's a beautiful practice. It's a practice mothers could do with their daughters. And it, it's very simple and very tangible. That is a lovely, lovely practice and a, and a great way to end in in the grounding in the sacred feminine through the body yeah and it's been such a pleasure to get to sit with you and to mm. meet you here and thank, thank you. you so much for your time it's really been a pleasure and thank you for your work so meaningful to me that you have this inspiration and commitment it's what i'm working for and it's lonely sometimes as I'm sure you know. And wisdom's rising. There's a wave. We're at the front of a big wave. And so the resources that you're creating will help many, many who are behind you. Thanks, Lama. You're welcome. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.